Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing David Diaz. Based in San Francisco, David is a tech lead in fan funding at YouTube and co-founder of Open Intro, a nonprofit organization that develops high-quality, tested educational resources, including open-source textbooks, free videos, and much more. You can follow Open Intro on Twitter at OpenIntroOrg, check out their website at OpenIntro.org, and you can also subscribe to their popular YouTube channel, Open Intro Org. Open Intro has published a number of books on Lean Pub, including Open Intro Statistics, Advanced High School Statistics, Introduction to Modern Statistics, Introductory Statistics for Life and Biomedical Sciences, and many more. In this interview, we're going to talk about David's background and career, Open Intro, some of the important issues regarding the publication and sale of college textbooks generally, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience writing and publishing books and other content through a volunteer-based nonprofit organization. So thank you very much, David, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. I definitely appreciate being asked to, to join. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself uh, eventually in the field of statistics. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, which is, I guess, maybe best known for the Mayo Clinic. And uh, did my undergrad at University of Minnesota in mathematics, then went to UCLA for my statistics PhD, uh, did a postdoc in biostatistics at Harvard School of Public Health, and then I uh, went to uh, YouTube in 2012 and have been working there ever since. And kind of in parallel to some of these things, well at UCLA Statistics, had started working on Open Intro uh, with a, a few other people. And uh, out of that came, as you mentioned, some, some, a book initially, and then uh, over time, a collection of books, uh, as well as other books that other people have written as well over the years. And just to learn a little bit more about you, um, when I was looking at your page on LinkedIn, I noticed that you you appear to have gone straight from a bachelor's degree to your PhD at UCLA in statistics. Is that is that a normal thing in statistics? Uh, I think it is reasonably common, but it definitely will vary for the background that people have. Uh, some people will be coming from industry, but I, I do see a lot of people who go straight from undergrad to the PhD program or maybe doing a master's degree and then move into the PhD program. And what was your PhD work on? It was on spatial statistics, which I have not actually done much of uh, since my postdoc. What's that? Uh, so that is, uh, in particular, it was basically, maybe maybe the easiest example to think about would be uh, earthquakes in California. You could think of putting them on a map. So maybe we have the map for 1989, the map for 1990, and so on. And the main focus of the PhD was trying to take that collection of maps and summarize what would be a typical map for a typical year for earthquakes in California. So trying to do that on kind of a broader basis for, you know, potentially multiple dimensions. And uh, yeah, so trying to kind of, it's in a way, it's kind of like the spatial median of uh, these point process maps. I can see how that work would have been compelling for people in California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so you, you did a postdoc at Harvard for a couple of years where uh, one of the things you did research on was the efficacy of smoking bans. And as a former smoker who was quite skeptical about the efficacy of smoking bans when they were first introduced, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your work there. What, what kind of work would a statistician do to determine the efficacy of smoking bans? Yeah, that was a very interesting project. So uh, maybe a little bit more background on the work that had been done before we had done our work. Uh, over the years, there had been you know a series of smoking bans in different counties and different states, and there had been different research studies on the efficacy of those of reducing uh, health effects along the lines of heart attacks as well as other cardiovascular uh, outcomes. And you know 
one, this is, this is a pattern that does actually come up in, in a handful of contexts where the initial study that gets published will estimate a very large effect. And it'll also have a very large confidence interval, but it will be a statistically significant result. And then, you know, a larger study comes along and the effect gets a bit smaller, as does the confidence interval. Uh, basically, you see this trend where uh, you, the effect tends to get smaller as the studies get larger and more powerful for getting a more precise estimate of that effect. And uh, when we did our study, actually, we, we did not find any statistically significant effect from the smoking bans on the particular health outcomes that we were focused on, which it's been you know, close to a decade now, but I think it was uh, heart attacks, if I recall correctly. And, you know, there's, there's some nuance there as well that we were focused on some particular health outcomes. There could be other health outcomes that were impacted, but, you know, thinking about the secondhand smoke aspects, it, it perhaps wasn't as powerful as this. It, well, I'd be very surprised if it was as powerful as those earlier studies had suggested. And uh, to me, that was a very powerful lesson in terms of especially uh, the risk of publication bias. So, there might have been other studies as well that where the authors had done a study, but they didn't find a statistically significant effect. And so it wasn't as interesting. Maybe they either didn't even write the paper and suggest the result to journals, or perhaps the journals you know, were not as interested in those results. So uh, it tended to be that you'd see these larger effects that were statistically significant that dwindled over time as they got more and more precise to smaller effects, but still significant, significant and then eventually uh, not statistically significant. And uh, I guess one more nuance about that was that the way that the modeling was done was that if we had taken the particular approach that the more recent studies had done, we still would have found an effect but when we did diagnostics on the models, it suggested that model was incorrect. And so we needed to have a more flexible model that accounted for nonlinearity in the trend of these health outcomes. It's so inter- it's such an interesting subject. I mean, for example, look specifically if you're trying to find a, uh, I mean, just speaking as a layperson, right? I mean, if, you, if you're trying to find a connection between smoking bans and uh, heart attacks, you've probably got to take into account things like was was smog going down in the areas where people were living at the same time was there new healthcare opportunities for people in the in the areas at that time and even changing demographics and things like that so you would have had to come up with some set of variables that you were taking into account that might also have been affecting heart attacks so in order to do it you actually have to study many different influences on heart attacks at the same time as smoking That'd be, that'd be the ideal for sure. Yeah, we tried to kind of have those modeled as a background curve of the, the rate of heart attacks. So you can imagine that before the smoking ban, we would be modeling the trend line of those uh, health outcomes. And uh, th- that trend would hopefully reflect those kind of background aspects, uh, whether it be air pollution or whether it be healthier eating or unhealthier eating or you know, exercise, et cetera. And what we were looking for in our particular model was to see whether there was a step change once the ban went into effect. So we would hope to see that as the exposure to secondhand smoke in particular was removed in many cases that we would see a reduction in uh, these bad health outcomes. And uh, yeah, so, so that I guess that flexible modeling part beforehand was I think where our study differed more from the other studies and that kind of muted the results to, to zero. And that, it was an interesting work. Yeah, <laughs> interesting no, it sounds, sounds fascinating. Um, actually, uh, just generally speaking, um, statistics has become, 
I think a more prominent part of kind of even you might say pop culture in the last 10 years or so than it was in the past, you know, with figures like um, Nate Silver, for example, um, you know, becoming very popular with his with his work on, on you know, elections uh, and things like that. But even with, you know, visualizations in, in reporting in the news and stuff like that, you know, I think people have become a lot more aware of, of, of statistics being used and how they can be used. And of course, and you know, this this is probably goes into a part of the open intro story, but the, the huge explosion in interest in data science in particular is something that's happened in the last, I would say, you know, just decade or so. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that happen and, and why you think that might have happened? Yeah. Um, so I guess maybe maybe I'll start with that in when I was doing my uh, math math undergrad, one of the professors that I had had steered me away from mathematics towards statistics. So he had actually seen, foreseen this kind of shift in, in trend uh, towards statistics being a much more relevant topic. So um, I should also just acknowledge there that I didn't see this coming, but somebody who, you know, was a mentor to me uh, did see it coming. And so I definitely appreciate that direction that he had provided. And in terms of what, what I've seen kind of evolve over the years, yeah, data science itself has become a very, uh, both a pop culture and uh, I'd say I'd say especially a pop culture term, but something that reflects uh, you know where things are headed in terms of more data is becoming available. We do need people who are competent at analyzing that data, whether that be through analysis or whether it be through machine learning systems. Um, there, there's a interesting kind of terminology behind I think data science as well in terms of when somebody says like I do data science it's also not always clear what they mean. <laughs> so it could be analysis or it could be machine learning. There's some blogs that I've read that I, I really enjoyed around describing data sciences. There's a type A data scientist for analyst and type B for build. Uh, so I would definitely encourage anybody who hasn't hasn't heard, read, heard of that or read those blogs to kind of search that out and re read their thoughts on that. But yeah, I, I think the that we've definitely seen it grow as an area even in the last 10 years. I, I remember uh, it being much more in a much smaller community early on, much more scrappy. And I think things have really developed and matured in, in a really healthy way. And, and I, I think some of those people that, you know, contacts that you'd provide as well of like Nate, Nate Silver, I think was a ni nice example of somebody bringing data science to the masses in a very interesting context. And, uh, I know he, he may get some, uh, uh, People people aren't always happy with every result that he he estimates, but I mean, for the most part, I think he's done a really phenomenal job in a very difficult context to give predictions based on very past noisy data and very past very noisy current data as well. Yeah, and actually, one one really interesting thing about it is how you know political things can get uh, when you're and it sounds it sounds funny <laughs> yeah. to someone who might not be familiar with the whole discourse around statistics. You think, well, it's dry, you know, bean counting, right? But then, you know, up until. Uh, one particular American election I'm thinking of, the New York Times was showing these like dials, you know, set to like a specific percentage point, like 86% mm -hmm. chance that candidate A is going to win. And I think a lot of the flack that Nate Silver, um, uh, and I'm not an expert on the issue, but like, you know, somewhat somewhat unfairly got was that there was the, the presentation of things that he had partially been behind was not necessarily something that he had been, he had decided upon or even approved of. But, you know, and that, 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 that leads me to just to sort of just ask you a very general question, which has actually come up, up on the podcast before, partly because it's kind of a fascination of mine. But one curious feature of, you know, ordinary human common sense is to believe that if something is presented in association with a number, is that it must be true 
uh, quantifiable <laughs> and well understood, right? And and I've I've had this experience kind of in the um, financial world to some extent. Nothing to do with stocks or anything like that. But you know, if you're doing kind of high level financial analysis of a business plan, for example, and you show people projections, like in the terms, let's say take a take a simple line chart, and then you have some numbers like the the uh, IRR is going to be you know twelve point five percent over the course of the lifetime of this investment. In my experience, no matter what you say to qualify what you've presented, half of the people at least are going to walk away thinking, you know, Len just said the IRR is going to be this, and they might come back in five years and go, you were wrong. And when you reply saying, well, if you recall at the time, I, <laughs> I put all this context around my yeah. number, <laughs> they'd go, what are you talking about? No, you said it was 12.5, you know, um, uh, what... In general, like as as you as you, I mean, in, in your work, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, I mean, I, I'm imagining at the professional level that you operate at YouTube, you don't have I, people understand this as well. But when you're talking to people in the general public or even educating future data scientists, what advice do you have for them about how to qualify the presentation of their results? Yeah, I I think you're highlighting something particularly important, which is that communication is definitely an underrated skill for not just data science, but I mean, every, every technical field. And in terms of the advice that I would maybe give someone would be be your you know, toughest critic on your work, really try to poke holes in your own work, because if you don't do it, uh, it's either going to be somebody who's, you, you know, who, who may do so in a more public way, or it could be that the even worse would be that those errors are, are not considered and they're not communicated accurately. So, um, I, I guess first would be yeah, be, be your biggest critic, uh, and make sure that you know what's what's not working there, and then temper the results as as you've described. Doing that can be very difficult. <laughs> uh, it, it's very easy for somebody to latch onto something that's very concrete, like a particular number that's reported, and forget all that context around it. So, uh, I, I think this is probably an area that there's a lot of room for better education on, as well as maybe better best practices on of how to uh, communicate those results in an effective way that, that does capture the, the uncertainty maybe that is associated with them. So, you know, one way do that, we do that in statistics is with confidence intervals, but confidence intervals even themselves don't always capture the true sense of the uncertainty. Usually they're reflecting the uncertainty in the model. And maybe the model itself is something that we're not too sure is, is a correct model or even a, well, no model is correct, but maybe not even that close to correct. So uh, I think it's worthwhile to try to run, you know, multiple variants of approaches to see how variable those results might be. And in many cases, I've done this in my past as well on, on projects. And sometimes those confidence intervals for a particular model will not reflect very much uncertainty, but then looking at a different model, we see a lot of uncertainty between those models. And in those cases, I actually find it useful to report all of the results and just say, hey, we know that there's uncertainty in all of these different approaches and we don't know which of these is correct. These are the range of possible results. Um, even forgetting the confidence intervals for a moment, just reporting those, those initial point estimates. And, and I found that to be a pretty helpful approach for communicating uncertainty is to report not just a single result, but but multiple results, and and if not, then at least a, a good confidence interval that does re really reflect the the uncertainty associated with that that estimate. Thanks very much for that really great answer. 
Uh, so as someone who's worked both on the academic side of things and from one might say the sort of you know industry side of things, do you think there might be it might be easier to practice being your harshest critic when you're working in a company as opposed to in academia where you're trying to say, for example, get tenure or something like that? I mean, you talked a little bit about publication bias earlier on, but I know from friends of mine in the, in the sciences in academia that there's, of course, there's, I mean, in humanities too, there's tremendous pressure to publish. And at a certain point, if you're going to get ahead in your career, you kind of have to stop being that critic, to put it kind of crudely. Yeah, I, I think that's a really thoughtful observation. And I, I think that I don't know that there's a good answer to that in terms of what the individual can do. I, I think that's that's a worthy call out, especially I think to the folks who are more senior to try to adjust that system, which is, which is basically the, the job of folks who are more senior in these departments to make sure that the incentives to do good science also align with people's advancement in their careers. And I, I think there's been attempts to do that in terms of focusing on publication and uh, making sure people are producing peer-reviewed work. But I, I don't know that, I, I don't think that that has, is a solution in itself. That, that feels like a metric that has been created of, you know, enough publications as well as publications that receive certain amounts of uh, citations or some type of reputation based on that. But once, you know, I, I think there's there's a saying, I, I can't remember who said it, but once once a metric is created, uh, it becomes potentially less useful as people start to game that metric, even if not intentionally, just subconsciously. And that that's definitely a problem that we see in industry of, you know, metric gets created, the team tries to start focusing on that particular metric. Uh, but the same thing happens in academia, and it does feel like that metric has become particularly stale. And I know it's much more complex than that. But I, but I would love to see some some further developments. And it's a very hard problem. And I, I would hope that senior folks who do come up with a better solution there would get lots of credit for you know improving upon that that problem as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. That that kind of thing can happen in finance as well, right? Where a new metric is created or an, one becomes more popular than in the past. And then you start tweaking what you do to kind of basically study to the test. Uh, mm -hmm. And that can actually have huge consequences on how all kinds of institutions are, are run and how all kinds of people's you know, individual career paths go, which reminds me of the next question I wanted <laughs> to ask you, which is going back to your story a little bit, which is, so there you were in Harvard doing a postdoc. Uh, you have your PhD behind you as well. Um, and you decided not to go the academic route and you moved to California and started working for Google at YouTube. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, so uh, I guess even as early... Maybe, maybe as high school, I'd planned to do teaching, and that had been most of my focus for, I guess, through through midway through my postdoc. And I, I think one thing I realized during my postdoc was that I don't actually enjoy teaching itself, but I really enjoyed the development of educational materials. And to me, the best of both worlds was then to work at in industry, which happened to be you know at Google and at YouTube. Uh, but then also in my spare time and my evenings and, and weekends and with a really awesome team at Open Intro to work on these additional resources that are open source. And that to me was, was, what, was what was right for me. So definitely not necessarily what is right for everybody else, but I found out really understood better what I enjoyed doing and ended up heading in that direction instead. 
And yeah, that uh, just one, I've got one more question before we go on to talking about open intro, which is, um, uh, I think people would probably be really interested to know what a, what a data science scientist does working for YouTube on a day-to-day -day basis. And I was just wondering about your, your current role in fan funding, if you could talk a little bit about what kind of work you would do when you, you know, well, go into the office if you're, if you're even doing that. Yeah, so, so not quite going to the office yet. We're, we're still working from home, but soon, soon, hopefully we'll be back in the office. And in terms of what the, maybe I'll give it a little bit more background on, on fan funding and what that means for YouTube. Uh, so fan funding is primarily focused on a couple of different categories of products that are intended to basically help uh, fans of channels help financially support those channels. Uh, so, so a couple of examples of products for that would be channel memberships. So for example, you know, Len, if you had a, had a YouTube channel and you had channel memberships on your channel, then I could join your channel and pay a subscription fee basically to be a member of your channel. And so uh, I think, I think I th that's, that's been, I think, a very powerful feature for creators to kind of build a, a f even stronger sense of community on YouTube as well as make it more possible for them to uh, further their work on the platform. And another example of a product is through live video. So folks who are running live video on, on YouTube and have uh, the features enabled for their channel, they can uh, have what are called super chats and uh, super stickers. And so basically people who want to support the channel can purchase a, a super chat or a super sticker in the live chat with with that community. And so that can add a little bit more prominence to their, their chat message, or it can post a sticker into that chat thread. And the creator then, you know, makes makes some money off of that to, to help further their channel. Yeah, thanks a lot of, uh, for sharing that. You just remind me, I was, I'm, not, I'm not a big gamer or anything like that, but a while ago I got into <laughs> uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild and I started watching some, some Twitch streams. And I was very surprised to see the person like three times a minute pause to sort of thank someone for what they've just contributed to them. And I imagine it was something similar to, to what you're describing. Uh, and, you know, being kind of old, I was kind of surprised that this was just like that giving money was actually this sort of cheerful community building thing. And, uh, you know, it was actually kind of like, I'm quite pleased to see that actually as a convention that showing just giving a little bit of support to people because you're enjoying what they're giving away otherwise for free is actually really good development in supporting creators. Yeah, and and I think that kind of, in a way, connects nicely with with LeanPub, <laughs> since that's that's exactly how we run our books on LeanPub. Just to highlight, so it's uh, you know folks who who want to give for for our books, it's purely optional, and uh, so it it kind of feels like there's some nice harmony there between working an open intro and having books along those lines, as well as working on fan funding at YouTube. Yeah, well, you just gave me the great, great segue into the next part of our of our podcast where we talk about open intros. So you 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 mentioned earlier. I didn't know this that you started it while you were still doing your PhD, uh, if I caught that correctly. Uh, yep, so that's right. Could you talk a little bit about the origin story? How did it How did it come about? Yeah, so uh, I would say the earliest phases of it started in two thousand eight, very roughly. I, we don't even I don't even know if we have a, a you know exact year that it really started, but. Um, by 2009, it was Chris Barr, Mina Chetankaya Rendell, and myself uh, who were really dedicated working on uh, Open Intro Statistics, the textbook that would become kind of the core product of, of what we offered. And now is you know, one product among many. Um, but that was, I would say, kind of of us just observing the textbook 
industry of our own experience as students at the time of seeing extremely expen expensive textbooks and especially as TAs and seeing the same textbook being used for students that didn't change that much year over year or edition over edition yet kept getting more expensive. And that was very confusing. We now understand why that is much better, which has nothing to do with the free market. Um, and yeah, so I guess we were just kind of confused and naive and we're like, hey, let's do something about this. And it's kind of good to be naive when you get into something this uh, time consuming and that <laughs> you, you st start spending hours and you just keep spending hours because you think it's much closer to completion than it actually is. But eventually, fortunately, if you keep with it, you get there. So uh, yeah, I guess 2009, we really started hard, hard working on the actual text of the book. By 2000, mid 2010, we had a preliminary edition. 2011, we had a first edition, and uh, we've had a few editions since then of, of that same book, as well as, as some more books. And for those who might be interested in or intimidated by the process of setting up a nonprofit, was that, was that something that you guys were planning on doing from early on? And was it, was it hard? Yeah, so we had planned to do nonprofit. Um, early on, we just basically made sure we didn't make any money. So that way, we didn't have to really worry about any of the uh, aspects around that. Um, but yeah, in terms of setting it up, we actually ended up just paying for a service to set it up for us. And that was, if I remember right, it was, it was a few thousand dollars. Um, people can definitely set it up on their own, but we anticipated that we would be growing over time and just wanted to really focus on, on the work that we were already doing. And so we just had paid an organization to take, take care of that aspect for us. And now, now we run it, you know, more basically on our own, but that initial setup was helpful. And had you raised any money before you decided to spend the money to set it up? Uh, we had, I think that same year is when we started charging more for the book. So for the first five years or so, we actually just didn't make a profit on anything. We just, um, I think even on the individual book sales, we were just marking it at cost. So this is the, pa the paperbacks, which was before, at that time, we were just doing straight PDF. People could download it without uh, running it through LeanPub, which I hadn't, hadn't known about LeanPub at the time. Um, but had I, then we might have considered going it through there earlier. Um, yeah, so our, our paperbacks, we had just priced them at cost. And I think it was 2016 that we did start uh, increasing the margin with the anticipation that we would become a nonprofit by the end of the year. And that was successful. So we were able to just kind of roll that all into the nonprofit and not have to deal with any weird tax stuff, which is nice too. Oh, I see. So you were actually operating for years before you incorporated as a nonprofit organization. Yep. Ah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually had a recent interview with someone who was working in an open, this open source world who thought initially that not taking any money would make things simpler and uh, they got really complicated for him <laughs> and for his yeah. <laughs> in, in no short order. Um, or, well, yeah. And, and he eventually had to incorporate in his, in his case, it was a for-profit organization, but mm -hmm. you know, you know, at, at a certain point of maturity in any project sort of formalizing things and yeah, having a sort of sound legal basis for them is very important for anyone out there listening. Who's, who's thinking about launching something like this. And yeah, you don't think about it too much though, <laughs> as you were saying, yeah, you, <laughs> You might not. You might not start. And um, I'm just actually just looking at a, a screenshot I took of a slide from a presentation you gave um, a few years ago. I didn't realize when I watched it how long ago it was. I think it was 2014 or 2015. But there was actually eventually a, an association between Open Intro, Open Intro's products and Coursera. Right. So Mina had actually run a course on Coursera, and that must have been yeah 20, 20, 
2012 or 2013, I don't know, somewhere around 2013-ish that she ran a Coursera course. And that was actually a really, uh, I think, big boost for uh, both her and also Open Intro's reach for you know folks who uh, would become aware of the project. So I think that was a really nice <laughs> set of work and a lot of work <laughs> that she put into to making that course happen. And since she was an author on the book, of course, she ended up using Open Intro Statistics, which, you know, was perfect since it was free online. And I think at that time, we maybe that was a time where we shifted on to LeanPub. And I think we were just having, uh, she, she would just take the profits from that since they're all voluntary. And she was doing all the work for, for getting that large audience. So it was just something that was listed on the, the Coursera page. But that was our first foray into LeanPub, which was exciting and encouraging for, for future developments in that space. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that at the end of the interview where we kind of go into the weeds of, of how to set up a project like this on LeanPub and things like that. Um, but but before we do that, actually, I, I feel like I've kind of buried the lead here and I, I imagine it evolved over the years. But what if you had if you were to give us the mission statement uh, for Open Intro, what would you say it, it's, its purpose is and, and just a little bit of the details of how it goes about uh, achieving that mission? Yeah, so... I'll, I'll actually just, I'm looking at our homepage right now, just to make sure I get it precisely right. Uh, but yeah, our, our mission is to make educational products that are free, transparent, and lower barriers to education. And that has evolved to also include now uh, really supporting other books as well. So we, we've just started recently in 2020 to start working with authors outside of kind of our core line of textbooks to try to bring our services to those books as well. And that's in that same mission of trying to make education more accessible for students, no matter you know their their financial means, as well as uh, you know provide them with plenty of supplements that they can learn in, in their particular way, if uh, if possible at all, at all. And the financial means question is actually quite interesting in the case. I'm thinking particularly of Coursera um, and 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 data science has become so their MOOCs on data science, but data science in particular is actually is popular all around the world. Like it didn't just explode in you know, the United States or something like that. And so people who have this, who are producing content for students of data science are actually, their audience is the whole world. And this might be people from countries with very different, you know, purchasing power parity and stuff like that. There might be people, and there might be, and of course there might be many people for whom any, any price is too high when they're just at the beginning of their, their journey. And uh, and so when you yeah when you talk about kind of you know the, the challenges that you're that you're trying the things you're trying to address that's actually a big a big part of it it's not it's not um it's not limited to kind of an, an American kind of vision. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, we we definitely see people using the resources uh, in many different countries, and as you said, in like countries of different means as well. And that has been something that has been important to us. Um, we, we definitely have still focused on the U.S., um, mainly because that's what we're most familiar with and that's what we can get uh, the most, I think, traction with. But we do have uh, lots of people in, in other countries who are using the book. We actually had uh, some folks over in Japan who did a translation of Open Interest Statistics recently. And so now there's a book now in Japanese that, that students can learn from, which is much better for, for local folks there than uh, reading the English version. So yeah, I, I think... I, that call out of it varies across the world is, is an important one. Yeah. And, uh, and, and although, although that's true, one of the reasons I bring it up is that there is, there is a particularly American framing, I think to the, to when, when I was doing my research for this, this interview to the mission behind the, the organization, which is partially that tuition costs are so extraordinarily high in the United States 
And this creates particular problems, even in, in a wealthy country, uh, for people who are trying to get through their education. And um, one particular, I mean, one particular feature of, of the expense of getting a university, let's just limit our scope to university degrees, is the cost of textbooks, which is fucking crazy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's something I wanted to, to talk to you, get, give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about, because this was obviously one of the origins. It was like you, you there, you were, you and your colleagues were, and friends were TAs, teaching assistants, you know, doing your graduate school student work. And then, you know, seeing students being assigned books that are worth hundreds of dollars, you know, that they're going to use for one course once and might not even be that good. And um, I guess generally, maybe, maybe as a way in, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that it's not a free market. And I was wondering if you could talk a little about, bit about things from that perspective, the, 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 the paid university textbook market. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that, this is one thing that we were completely naive to when we first started our work, work there. And I guess thinking about what happens during the purchase of a textbook or, you know, the, the context around the purchase of a textbook is particularly interesting. And you can imagine that maybe, Len, if you were running a course and I was taking your course, uh, you, would, you would choose the book that we, we would purchase as students. And so in, in a way we have, you know, one person picking the textbook and another person having to pay for that, that textbook. So it may not be the right textbook for me as the student in terms of it might not be ideal for me, or maybe I think it's just too expensive and there's another book that offers the same content at much more value. Um, but, you know, as the... A course goes. It's hard to get around that issue. It's it's not really a feasible aspect of, of you know making it so that students can choose whatever book they want. Uh, so that that itself is it is something that uh, we didn't really understand, even though it is quite obvious in hindsight. Uh, but then there's even more behind it from there. So uh, maybe maybe students don't recognize this as much. Um, but teachers also get their textbooks for free in most cases, or at least in many cases. So if maybe I'm teaching a course and I want to explore a textbook for whether I want to use it, I'd reach out to the publisher and I'd say, hey, please, can you send me a copy of the textbook? And I will consider using it for my course. And the textbook company will typically send us, you know, to send me the teacher the, the book, which we also do for open intro, I'll readily admit. Um, which is, I think, an important thing because we have to compete with these other publishers that are doing the same thing. But I think, I think where things really go haywire is that uh, it's it's not always transparent to teachers what the actual cost is to students, and they may not really be internalizing that true cost that are incurred on students. That's that's one I think place where we really differentiate from other publishers in that you know as as the book is free online, students can get the book for free just as the teacher got it for free, and we also offer paperbacks at uh, twenty dollars or less for for our books. And I, I, I guess that aspect of, you know, a teacher might not know the price of the book. Actually, it's interesting because by law, the publisher has to tell them the price. It has to be very clear on that. But I, I don't know that that's always happening. And I've actually, you know, gone to conferences and, and visited these introductory textbook uh, booths, and they don't always have a price list. So even at these these conferences, they don't always follow the law. And that kind of undermines that even even any sense of a free market in this aspect. So um, I, I think it's a very complex situation. And actually, in some ways, it mirrors the U.S. healthcare system in that the people who are choosing the healthcare aren't necessarily the people who are 
paying for the healthcare directly, at least. So that's usually the insurance companies, but the insurance companies don't have full sway. And so that can lead to, esca- lead to escalating costs, um, which I think is, there's some parallels here between healthcare and textbook industry. Oh yeah. Interesting. Oh yeah, definitely. That's, that's super fascinating um, thing. And I'm, I think I'll ask you, I've got a question I'm teeing up to ask you in, in a moment about that, but before we get there, just to give a sense of scale, um, you've talked about this in a, in a couple of talks and things like that, but you know, I think you give the statistic that something like one in 60 or one in 65, 60% or one, or sorry, not one in 60 to 65% of first year undergraduate students don't buy a textbook that they need for one of their courses because of the cost. Uh, that's really yeah. high number of people, high proportion of people trying to get an education who are actually missing like a key resource. Um, and you've also got this really funny observation that there are cases where if you take the number of textbooks purchased, the number, the, the cost of the textbook multiplied by the students in the course, that, <laughs> that cost might actually be higher than the expenditure on the teaching. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think those are uh, two statistics that we've found quite interesting for sure. And and the first one, that, that 65%. So I've seen that in a couple of studies. We actually ran our own survey and got a similar result when we asked students for it. So that's why we felt pretty comfortable in you know reporting that number is that we saw it in two spots and we replicated ourselves in a in a relatively small and informal study, but still, you know, encouraging, uh, thinking that it's, you know, actually a real result and actually is a real disruption to education. And the, the parallels to healthcare are so fascinating. Uh, for example, um, one question that, you know, when you start thinking about this, that you might ask yourself is, why doesn't tuition cover textbooks? And, you know, it covers a lot of different things that you need to get your education, but not, not the textbooks from a certain, if you're, if you're inventing the university system with a tuition payment at the big tuition payment at the beginning, you know, you might make, take that into account, but that's actually, the answer to that isn't being the right thing to do isn't necessarily straightforward because one of the reasons, at least in my opinion, university costs have ballooned so much is that when you just see the top level tuition amount, the people determining that amount can keep slipping things in and making it <laughs> higher and higher. And you don't, you don't necessarily realize that now you're paying, I don't know, what's the old joke, $10,000 for a toilet seat or something like that. Right. And, and uh, at the same time though, giving people a tuition amount it's sort of common sense to think, well, that's what it's going to cost. And then all of a sudden you realize as a student, maybe your parents never went to university. So how would you know? There's like thousands and thousands of dollars more that you have to spend on these textbooks. And I guess I just, as a way into your, your thinking about this, what would, if someone were proposing, like we should actually include the cost of textbooks in tuition, is that something you would approve of or disapprove of? I think I'd, I think I'd feel better about it than the current model, but I, I think you're making a really good point that it, if a student sees a price of 25000 or 27000 they may not really differentiate between those those aspect, those two prices for their decision. And in terms of, yeah, trying, trying to think. Of, yeah, I guess, I guess, I mean, just to, to carry on with the, the process yeah. of thinking, the other, the other, the counter argument would be, well, now if the universities are becoming, like just like with, with drugs, right, with pharmaceuticals, if now the universities are becoming bulk buyers of textbooks, and then they band together, for example, in a network, then they could put pressure on the publishers of textbooks to bring the price down in bulk. Yeah, that's, that's a good point for sure. Um, I also feel like, so, you know, take, take where I did my PhD at UCLA statistics and UCLA statistics, our introductory statistics course. Uh, that was, I want to say around 1500 or 2000 students per year when I was there. And 
you could imagine at $150 for a textbook, you know, we're talking several hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, and so the university at that point could actually just say, I'm gonna write, we're going to write our own book <laughs> and have our own book. We're going we're gonna to put one year of textbook money into paying a couple of faculty to full-time write this textbook. And now we're set for you know arbitrary number of years going forward, or at least several years going forward. So yeah, there's definitely, uh, I think, a better incentive there. And, and this is, I think, one place where we see some differentiation between the uh, college level and high school. So we have one, one textbook that's targeted towards high schools, and that market seems a bit more competitive because there is that <laughs> the schools that are purchasing those books are also the ones who are deciding which book to use. And so I, I think that trying to push the universities into trying to reduce those costs as well would be a great, great step. I think your call out there that it's within their motivation to, to minimize that cost is a good one. Well, and in the end, like so many other things, I imagine there's, there's, I mean, you know, money is, money is a big motivator, right? I was remember there's, I actually wrote a, an angry blog post about a, an article I read in the New York Times not too long ago by someone who was complaining about students ripping off their professors by using older, older versions of the textbooks <laughs> or, or pirating them online. And I'm like, oh yeah, the, the poor, the poor, prof- I mean, I've got lots of friends who are professors, you know, I wrote a doctorate myself, you know, I'm sympathetic to, to professors, but like, oh no, the poor professor compared to the like 19 year old kid paying 60 grand tuition. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to spend my time writing New York times op-eds about one side rather than the other, I don't think. Um, and and just to, just to give a sense of why, I mean, particularly, you know, people can get really passionate about these things. One one thing that students are subjected to nowadays is access codes, temporary access codes to educational material. Um, uh, it from from the outside, it looks like a real racket, right? Uh, you know, on the part of the publishing companies, where basically students can pay lots of money to only have access to say a, a, a DRM'd ebook for the period of the term of their study or something like that. And I guess, I guess, you know, there's, there's lots of things you could try to do to change a system like that from within, but there are things you can do to try to change in a system like that from without, which is exactly what, what, what you guys are doing with um, uh, your, your open education resources, including textbooks and, and videos. Um, and I, I wanted to get, get, get a little bit into the sort of weeds around the, the organization of all that effort. So uh, Open Intro is, is entirely a voluntary organization. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, we, we do have uh, a few authors who are making a small royalty now on the books that they've written. Previously, it was just nobody was making anything, but uh, we have wanted to for a long time shift towards that model where people would get would make some money from their work. But given you know the constraints that we do put on pricing and such, it's, it's a very modest amount. And but still, still we think an important thing to have happen. And, and so concurrent. Hope- <laughs> And so currently no one's being paid to do any administrative work at all. No, no one's being paid to do administrative work right now. Uh, we have talked about doing that though, because we do teacher verifications and desk copy fulfillment, which is relatively trivial. It doesn't take much time, but it is kind of just a onerous step of the process. And uh, as we hopefully scale up to more books and supporting books beyond more books beyond our uh, kind of core set of, of textbooks, we do anticipate that we will have many more teachers signing up through open intro as well as sending out more desk copies. And we do plan to start paying some folks on staff to uh, actually do that work, which is, you know, also a nice thing in that the kind of grungiest work is, is work that, that gets paid. Whereas I, I think this other work that we do oftentimes it's uh, 
not always glamorous, but it's, I think, a bit more fun. <laughs> and have you had to do any kind of systemic, set up any kind of systemic recruitment process or anything like that to find volunteers? Or, or has Open Intro just kind of naturally found people when it needs them? We had, yeah, we were super informal before. It would be somebody would reach out and uh, we would get back to them over email and maybe we'd find, find a project for them uh, within the organization or maybe they had a project idea. And so it was extremely informal before. It's still pretty informal. We, have a, we, we finally put a form on our website maybe in 2019 or 2020 for people to get involved with. And so we have a set of projects that people can sign up for and get involved with there now. And can any teachers sign up to become a verified teacher and then get access to sort of like a restricted material, like the answers to even numbered questions and things like that? Yeah, that's that's what we have on our website set up. And I'd say that works probably in, I, I would uh, estimate about 90% of the cases that works quite well. Um, there's definitely some cases where, you know, maybe 10% of teachers, maybe it's teachers who are at, at schools that don't have good good infrastructure or we can't actually get a good way to check and verify they're a teacher. Um, so not, not every teacher does make it through, but the vast majority do. And mass, vast majority do make it through very, very quickly as well uh, to access that, that teacher-only content. And are open intro books being used as part of formal university uh, courses? Yeah, we, we definitely have a lot of university instructors who have signed up and confirmed that they are teaching with the book. And uh, kind of ironic, even, even though we're statisticians, we weren't collecting that data for a very long time. And we finally started collecting that data, at least through the desk copy request program that we have, where te- we'll have teachers you know, indicate whether they have already made a decision. And we now have a follow-up survey for those teachers uh, to confirm what their decision was and such. But yeah, so we, we do track that now. And we definitely have a large number of courses that uh, are using the book. We actually have, it's over 3,500. It might be now 4,000 teachers who've registered and become verified on open intro. So we have a very large number of, uh, and these are formal teachers at, at formal educational institutions who've, who've registered on the site to gain access to these materials. And are there any, I'm interested if there are any kind of institutional roadblocks that are put up, you know, for example, if you're an, an ordinary university professor and now you want to use this, you know, open resource ebook as your, as your textbook for your introductory course to statistics, do you have to go through any special process to justify that as opposed to getting one from, you know, a big conventional publisher to, to use for your course? I don't think there's any difference between just switching to any other textbook. So our textbooks have the, I'd say even more optionality than what the typical publisher does. So we do offer the paperback. We also have the free online and the books are, you know, thoroughly vetted and have been thoroughly tested now over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so for, for at least our oldest book. And yeah, so I think that's mainly a departmental decision of, is the teacher permitted to choose which textbook they want less than, uh, are they permitted to choose a, an open source textbook in particular? And do you feel that attitudes have changed in recent years from, from people who are sort of part of these, these formal institutions with respect to open resource, like open access resources? Because I know in the past that typically people would voice, in my opinion, kind of a kind of knee-jerk and thoughtless concern about the quality of something if it hasn't gone through, um, you know, the process that a, a publishing company would have would have put it through. Strikes me that people who've never 
who need to read more widely if they think that's a guarantee of quality. Uh, but um, do you think people's attitudes have changed around that in years? I mean, you know, there's, there's institutions like yours that have grown so, so well all around the world. There's, you know, MIT offers, offers free courses and things like that. Um, uh, do you think attitudes like that have changed within the university institution and, and faculty? My perception is yes. Uh, I, I would say, though, that we're definitely getting a, a biased sample that is within our, our view. So the teachers who, who do register, we know that they're already interested. But my, my general sense is that there is more acceptance of it within the community. And I, I think that, especially now, I think books have gotten a lot stronger that are open source. And it might it might have been true that, you know, especially going back more than 10 years ago, that the books that were available, maybe maybe they weren't you know, the typical open source book wasn't quite as strong as the typical uh, publisher book. It doesn't mean that it was a good or a bad book, either publisher or open source education, but there probably was some differentiation there. And there might even still be some differentiation for the typical book. But, you know, we're looking at the actual popular books or books that have uh, really devoted a lot of time to making that resource available. I, I think now it's it's hard to tell the difference in terms of quality. And we've had, definitely had many instructors who've commented that they think our books are higher quality than many of the publisher books that they've reviewed, if not any of all of the publisher books that they've reviewed. And of course, this is you know individual taste as well. So some teachers will feel otherwise, for sure. But yeah, we're, we're very happy with where, where things have gone and where the attitudes have gone towards in this direction. Well, and it's really fascinating too that with... Um with different business models can come actually different solutions to problems, right? Which is so, so price is actually a really important one, but like in a sense, sort of setting that aside, right? When you're making things available as eBooks, one thing that you guys do, which is so great is you offer, when you, when you get version four, you can also get version one, two, and three along with it. And as a student, that might sound, well, what, what do I care about the older versions? I just want the more recent ones. But if you're a teacher, and you've got students with volume printed versions of volumes one, two, three, and four, being able to kind of point people to the right place is actually now something you can do, um, uh, which you couldn't do before, right? You know, go to page, you know, if you say go to page 22 and it's people are on different versions, it's a classic teaching problem. Uh, being able to provide constructors with ebook versions of, of past versions actually just solves this really huge problem for classroom teaching. Yeah, and and um, even as well for those students who, you know, took took a course four years ago, they can come and they can get their the version that they they learned with. So, um, in addition to some teachers who do use that older edition, um, which you know tends to dwindle out over time, but we also wanted to make sure that students we have this kind of line of, you know, the student can uh, if if a teacher uses our book, the student will have access to that book forever. That is our intent. And that's the reason we make sure that all past editions are remain available. So students can always go back to the book that they are most familiar with. Even if we think the newer edition is better, that, that doesn't mean that it's better for that student who's most familiar with the edition from you know, five or even 10 years ago. Oh, that's fascinating. I'd never thought of that enormous advantage to being able to, to get these multiple versions at the same time. That's really great. Just moving on to the uh, last part. Actually, no, just before we move on to the last part of the interview, um, uh, where we talk more about process and things like that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what, what future projects Open Intro is working on right now. Yeah, our, our biggest project that we're working on right now is around a partner program where we are looking to identify uh, a handful of textbooks that 
have been written, have been out for a while, have been vetted and are well-reviewed and, and doing quite well. And basically trying to provide them services that are similar to what a publisher would provide to book. So we're not, we're not intending to be the publisher of these books, but we're trying to basically help these existing open source books gain more traction and get in front of more teachers. And so we have a handful of books. Uh, we have uh, a book by Stitson Zieger uh, that is pre-calculus. We have Apex Calculus and we have uh, Linear Algebra as well available. And these are books that have been written and around for quite a while now and have been doing quite well. And they've joined us. Uh, we basically provide desk copies. And uh, if they have solutions manuals that they want to keep restricted to teachers, then, then we can host those on our site and kind of take care of that process of reviewing teachers for, for those books. And this is part of something that we've been working on for a while, trying to really streamline our own process so that we, we can do these things extremely efficiently. And to support these, these other books, it's really just a little bit more than the cost of all the desk copies that go out. So the actual, uh, you know, this is even before so right now it's actually just the cost of the desk copies because we just do uh, volunteer hours for this administration time. But in the future, when we do even start paying people to do this work, uh, the cost is going to be still mainly those desk copies in particular. And yeah, that, that's where, where we're most excited about right now. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really great. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, we don't have any data on, on it either, but um, uh, a, a particularly high proportion of our audience is probably people who might have books that are might be appropriate for a program like that. And is there anything, is there any particular place people can go if they think their book might be a fit for uh, partnering up with you? Yeah, they can, they can send us an email. Um, so we have admin at openintro.org would probably be the place to first reach out. Um, I, I will highlight that we are still in a very small scale for this. So uh, we're scaling up slowly to make sure that we work out all of the kinks. So like last year in 2020, our focus was on making sure that our infrastructure was sufficient for scaling up to more books. And this year we're trying to make it so that we're confident that it's going to be financially sustainable for us to scale up to more books. And that'll probably continue on into 2022. But if we hit, hit both those kind of steps, then our hope would be that we can scale this up to, you know, dozens and in the long term, hundreds of, of books that we would support and provide these services to um, where uh, interestingly, actually through this program, we use LeanPub as the primary mechanism for raising funds for, for covering those desk copies. So um, this might be a little bit different for, we might have to find a different model for people who are already on LeanPub and distributing their books. But it's kind of just trying to bring in a new revenue stream to cover these costs so that way those existing authors can you know, retain their, their royalties for their paper bucks, which they've been doing for, for years now. So that's, that's the model which you know, LeanPub has enabled us to do, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I think you've brought that up a couple of times. So this might actually might be the right moment to talk about that. So um, uh, one of the things that people who, who are familiar with LeanPub will know, but people who aren't familiar with LeanPub won't, is that we have a variable pricing model on our books, which means that um, you set both a min- you set two prices for your book, not just one. You set a minimum price and a uh, suggested price. And then when someone comes to the website, to the landing page for the book, they're presented with a, well, with a slider uh, a pricing slider, as we call it, that you can slide to the left to take it all the way down to free if you want. You can leave it where it is at the suggested price, um, or you can slide it to the right and you can pay more. And so this has been a, a really popular tool for for people who are in the educational space on LeanPub, where they can offer their resource for free to people, but also generate some some revenue for it to help fund their projects because people do have the option to pay. 
Yeah, I feel like this has been a really phenomenal model for us to to participate in. Uh, kind of looking back at our, our recent years where we have been participating in LeanPub and using LeanPub as a distribution platform for PDFs, it's become actually a, a hefty revenue stream for us to help you know grow our program. And I'm sure you know even as an individual author, this would be an extremely uh, you know great platform to be working on. Do you remember how you found out about about LeanPub? I know it was a few years ago now. Yeah, so uh, Mina was the first person on our team to to bring it to my attention, and I think Roger Pang was the person who brought it to her attention. If I'm right, and Roger has I think a handful of books on LeanPub, and is also has a very heavy distribution on LeanPub, and he's run a, a couple of uh, Coursera courses of Fahrenheit. Um, yeah, he he and he and his colleagues ran what might have been the most. Um, at the time, successful MOOC ever uh, on on data science on Coursera, um, and actually, if you if you look in the in the Front Matter podcast archives, you'll find interviews with Roger Peng and Jeff Leak and Brian Caffo, who are some of the people behind behind that stuff. So yeah, that's no, that's really great to hear that they found their way to you, I guess, um, through through that work. Um, and have you found it easy to coordinate amongst authors? So you okay, yeah, it's kind of hard to ask this question, but like you're running this volunteer volunteer organization where you're producing these really high quality books that are co-authored by people and then and then rigorously tested. And so I think people can probably most more or less use their imaginations to figure out how do you propose a new book project? How do you agree on it? How do you find authors? How do you coordinate the co-authoring and things like that? But how do you go about doing your testing of your textbooks? Yeah, so we'll, we'll usually do a semester or two of testing in the classroom where we'll just pay for textbooks to go to those classes. And Usually it's two or three classes uh, in a given semester that we'll be testing. So we actually have, for example, a new edition of Advanced High School Statistics that's that we were thinking about releasing in 2021, but we decided to do uh, additional testing on. And so that book is going out to, I think we have three different courses that'll be using it in 2021 to 2022. And with the plan of releasing that new edition in 2022. So, so that's the main mechanism that we use for actual testing. And it is, you know, actual students who are getting the book. Uh, and in these cases, we, we just fund those books directly um, based on, on our past editions royalties. So you send a bunch of book, books in a box to a teacher. Um, yep. And a and, PDF to all the students who want it. <laughs> and then, and then is, there, is there an organized way of getting feedback? Like, does the teacher tell the students, if you ever find a typo, tell, let me know and I'll, I'll tell the authors about it? Yeah, so the students can either you know send us a typo report through our website, or they can send us an email. Uh, the teacher will also you know oftentimes be reviewing the book in particular detail to to highlight these issues. Um, and yeah, I, I think some of the other aspects that we're also trying to keep in mind are you know whether the some of the new examples maybe resonate with students. So we might do surveys with these courses, uh, or sorry, with these with these students as well as with the teacher in particular who is really the main channel for getting that feedback. And um, one, one feature we have on LeanPub actually is an email the author or author's uh, link on the landing page for a book. And you've, you've reached um, many, many students uh, through, through LeanPub, uh, which we've been really pleased to see over the years. Uh, do you receive feedback through that mechanism as well? Uh, we don't, I, I think th most people go through our website currently, um, but I, I think that's maybe just the kind of inherent aspect of we have a lot of our, you know, links through to our YouTube videos and to uh, labs and such that are on our website, which are not on LeanPub, which probably just means that students go to our website more often than they go to LeanPub directly. And I think that's that's probably the, it's probably a special case for, for books that are on LeanPub. 
Yeah, I was just particularly curious, actually, from, uh, you know, I, I was concerned that maybe having this feature on LeanPub was, con- was sort of messing up your process, but I'm, I'm glad to hear it's not. No, it's, it's working great. We, we do occasionally get a, a message through there, and it's always welcome to get a message through LeanPub. The last question I always like to ask people on the podcast, if, they're, if they've been using LeanPub, is if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or if there was one really annoying problem we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? I think the topic that I, I guess, you know, thinking of LeanPub is, is online. I would also be really excited to see LeanPub offline. So an actual physical book distribution as well might be a very interesting space. And part of that is, uh, I'd say that the distribution is for paperbacks in particular, or for you know, these open source books in particular, is a very small number of companies that, that we have options for working with. And that, that could be, I think, an interesting space for LeanPub to get into. I think it'd be a very capital intensive space to get into. So I don't know that it's actually a viable one, but it's, it's one that comes to mind. So yeah, thank you very much for for that suggestion. That is something that we've had we've had people ask before in various ways. You know, some of them are. You know, what would be really great is like just like <laughs> have a have a make a print book button because what we what, our version of that is a print ready PDF button. You you set some parameters, you click a button, you'll get a PDF that you can upload to various print on demand services. But it's not the same thing as like publish my book in paper and make it for sale magic button. Uh, it is, I mean, without committing ourselves to anything like that. We haven't been discussing this kind of thing lately you know, or anything like that. So for anyone listening, but one of the, so I mentioned that some of the guests on here are LeanPub authors and some aren't. The ones who aren't are typically experts in the book publishing industry that I interview from time to time. And one of the really big changes that in the book industry in the last few years that was accelerated by the pandemic was basically people specifically switching to Ingram uh, yep. for the for the printing and distribution of their books, and I don't. When I say people, I people like you who run nonprofits, people like the sort of ordinary kind of isolated and alone self published author, but also big publishers uh, have been switching to Ingram, uh, and the idea that at some point in the future, an outfit like LeanPub might be able to just sync up is is not outside the realm of possibility and it's something we'd found we'd find really interesting as you say it would be both capital intensive and like i mean as you know very well when you start when you when you start adding um i don't know start using molecules instead of just electrons (laughs) the the logistics become it's just a totally different thing and so that's 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 basically you know they uh, that you you hit right on the sort of the the issue with why this isn't something that we've really we've we haven't really done yet but but it is something that we've heard from people about and we totally understand the desire for it and uh you know and it's one of the reasons we do have our print ready pdf output feature well david thank you very much for taking the time uh out of what i'm sure was a beautiful afternoon in uh san francisco to talk to us and thanks very much for uh, making lean public platform and we're just so happy to see how you guys have succeeded and that you've been able to use it to offer free open resources to people but also fund your your organization to some extent as well so that you can grow and reach even more people in the future Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was definitely a pleasure to join you on the podcast. And thank you also so much for running LeanPub, which has been, I'd say, a critical feature of growing our community of of textbook authors and and making making it work. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.